Welcome to Desert City Church's podcast. Thanks for listening in. What you are about to hear is a sermon given live at one of our Sunday gatherings. We are a new church serving neighborhoods on the edge of North Phoenix and Scottsdale, Arizona. Our sermons are ongoing conversations around a sacred text or scripture in which we find the story of Jesus. We hope they inspire you to love God and others more. If we can serve you in any way or answer any questions about our community, please don't hesitate to ask. You can find out more info at DesertCityChurch.com. My name is Jared, and my name is Biblical. It's in the Bible. I didn't find this out until I was in high school. Uh, My dad's a pastor, and so when I found out I was named after someone in the Bible, I was pretty excited. Uh, The name Jared doesn't sound like a biblical name, uh, but, you know, it sounds like a jeweler or something in our culture. Um, When I found out my name was in the Bible, I was really excited, and I was like, you know, maybe I was some great warrior in the Old Testament or some prophet that did something with great faith. So, like, I couldn't wait to see, like, what my name meant and, like, what the story was around it, and... My dad was like, oh, yeah, yeah, we named you. Your name's in the Bible. I'm like, oh, very cool, all right. So I find it. It's in Genesis. It's in one of the first chapters of Genesis. And it has one sentence that my name is in. It says that Jared uh, lived to be 962 years old and then died. (laughs) And I was like, oh, wow, that's it? And like, maybe the context around it, maybe something cool happened. And it said, Jared's grandson, Methuselah, lived to be 969 years old, the oldest man to ever live, and then he died. And I was like, so he's known for being really old, but he's not even the oldest man. (laughs) So, like, basically my name is, like, famous for being a grandpa of someone else that was significant. And, like, as a high schooler, like, being named after, like, you know, a famous grandpa isn't super inspiring. Um... And, you know, now that I'm older, I'm like, oh, that's kind of cool, right? You know, like our grandchildren, the legacy that we leave in this world. Uh, But my name doesn't really have anything really significant about it. My son is named Micah. My other son is named Ezra. And everyone always jokes that we named them for biblical characters. And we're actually, like, didn't mean to. We just really like those names. Uh, But Micah, Micah is a biblical character. And, and... The verse that we're going to look at today is actually one of my favorite verses, and in a way it did inspire the name for my son. Um, We did like Micah anyway, but the fact that uh, it comes from uh, this story uh, made it so much more meaningful to us. And so if you see Micah, we we actually thought we were going to call Micah MJ, and as you've known Micah, like Micah just fits better. Um, So we thought we were going to give him initials, but it's actually his name. Micah chapter 6-8 is a, a verse that is extremely popular, uh, famous. It's become more famous recently. You may have heard it before. And let me just read it, and then we'll kind of unpack it. It says, He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to to walk humbly with your God. Pretty easy verse. Presents this question. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Micah is one of the minor prophets. There are 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, When you kind of look at the genre of this literature, the genre that's being written, we have the the major prophets and then we have the minor prophets. The minor prophets are kind of known for being short-winded. Most of their 
most of their books are only a few chapters long, opposed to like Isaiah or Jeremiah, which are these just really large, uh, very large books that are in the Old Testament. Uh, but, but Micah is, he comes from a small town, and he, and, he, and he probably grew up a small town farmer. So imagine someone like Phil Compton, right? Grew up in Indiana, uh, north, northeastern part of Indiana. Uh, Micah is this kind of small town, uh, grew up maybe farming. And the, this is sometime between the 8th and 7th century before Christ. And what's going on here kind of in his context is uh, he, he's... He's a prophet in Judah, and Judah's experienced like 40 years of peace and prosperity and good things. But there's this sense that that's coming to an end. There's this sense that things have gone really well. Um, and in the midst of that, uh, we've kind of just taken advantage of, of God's blessings. We've kind of become this entitled people, and we've stopped treating people the way that God has wanted us to treat people. At the same time, there's this uh, massive empire, the Assyrians to the north, that have kind of come down and they're, they're just kind of like wiping out everyone and taking control, and they're extremely violent. The capital of Assyria is Nineveh. So for those of you who know the story of Jonah, uh, that you might be able to connect the dots with the kind of people that are to the north of Judah that are coming down. And there's this great fear that this oppressive, mighty empire is going to come in. And Micah's kind of giving this warning to the people. And he's saying, look out, because we've, we've completely taken advantage of our prosperity. And in the, in the midst of, of being blessed by God, we haven't used God's blessing to bless others. In fact, we've taken advantage of other people, and there's a danger to that. And because of that, uh, there, there's, there's this warning here. Their, their society, in a way, has started to kind of erode and become corrupt. And there's this fear of what God is doing, and... and and so as Micah writes, he's like, it, 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 this is prophetic message to say, there is a warning of what's going on in our world. And he says to the people, he has showed you, oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. It's also a good question when you think about like, you know, Sometimes we wish we had like this direct line to God where we could just ask questions of like, why does this happen? Why does that happen? What do you want from my future? What do I need to do for this next decision? And it's like, if, if God is this uh, omnipotent God and, and if he is omniscient and knows everything, then if we have this relationship with him, why can't we just come to him and just say, God, tell me what to do? Just give me the path and I'll go down it. But what's interesting is we consider like, what is the will of God in our life? What is it that he requires from us? There's a very direct answer in this passage. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly in this world. And I think that there's times where God does give us specific tasks. But I think what is significant about this, when we think about our lives and our interaction with God and the world around us, this is what God requires. And when we do these things, there's this great freedom that God gives us to live in this world when we act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with him. And we kind of look at these actions. You know, the actions are to, to act, to love, and to walk. There is action here that's required on our part. To act, to love, to walk. And I want to look at just the acting justly. 
What does that mean? To act justly. It means to be people of justice. To be about justice. Justice in the Hebrew is this word mishpat. I don't have a good Hebrew accent, so I'm sure it's not pronounced that way. But justice is like the central message of the minor prophets. This is absolutely essential to them. And there's nine words associated with justice throughout Scripture that we find. These nine words are widow, fatherless, orphans, poor, hungry, stranger, needy, weak, and oppressed. These are nine words that are associated with this idea of justice found throughout Scripture. And what's interesting is what you don't find here is powerful or rich. Like some people will say, well, then, you know, God shows preferential treatment to the poor. Why doesn't he care about the rich? And what, what I would say is that God cares about all people, wealthy or poor. But at this point in history, if you do have wealth, you have the ability to purchase justice for the most part. And at this point in history, if you don't have wealth, maybe much like today, you get in trouble, it's a lot harder to get out of. It's so what God is saying is like he's formed his people to look out for those who are powerless. He loves all people. And the message of God is for all people, rich and poor. But he says there's something about having an advantage in this world to have the power and to look out for those who are powerless. There's this justice that he desires from his people to be on the move in this world, working for those on the underside of power. The command covers the response to a variety of realities, from perjury and bribery to basic mistreatment and oppression. But the idea of this justice is to work for the fairness of those who have no voice. Uh, there's a, a story by Charles Dickens, and it's interesting to talk about Charles Dickens in the summertime because I always feel like, you know, he writes about Christmas and Scrooge and all that. Uh, but there's a story about Charles Dickens uh, a couple hundred years ago when, when, when he's alive and he's in England. You know, there's the, the Industrial Revolution's happening. And part of the Industrial Revolution put just tons of people to work. Um, and in England at this time, uh, children from the age of 12 years old were being sent into these coal mines, down into the, the coal shaft, down into... Uh, the mines, and they would work all day long, and then at the end of the day, they would go home. And you think about, like, the difficulty of being a coal miner. Imagine being 12 years old and being a coal miner. I mean, this is a terrible life, terrible, absolutely terrible life. But there's production that needs to happen. There's jobs that need to take place. We're putting people to work. And, and if you grow up in a, in a place where you don't have a lot of opportunity, like, at least it's a job. But then, I think, even at this time, they realized, like, you know, sending 12-year-olds to work in a coal mine is pretty brutal. That's a brutal life. And the church is very involved in the community, in society at this point. And the church recognizes this. And Dickens talks about how the church seeing, like, especially the poor communities that would send their 12-year-old boys into the coal mine, said, we need to do something about this. We need to help out. And so, especially around Christmas, they would bring presents to these families that sent the 12-year-old boys to the coal mines. Uh, they would give them relief at different times in the season. It says they would give away Tom, Tom's turkey, uh, Tom turkey. I don't even know what that means. Kevin, you might be able to fill us in. You're from England. They would give away Tom turkeys on, on uh, special holidays to the, to the families of these children. 
And they wanted to get involved to make life better. Then at some point, some of the people involved in the church decided 12-year-olds shouldn't work in coal mines. And so they got involved with the system, and they changed the system so that 12-year-old boys could go to school instead of go work in coal mines. And Charles Dickens talks about this story of the church's interaction with society was something that was very much unjust. And he says, when the church would give away things, give away presents, give away good gifts, give away Tom Turkeys, that's charity. That's a great thing for a church to do. But when the system was changed so that 12-year-old boys no longer have to go to work in coal mines, he says, that's justice. And the church gets involved in ways for charity, but then the church is involved with justice in this world. We have the eyes to see, the ears to hear. They call us the body of Christ. To do things in this world where we get involved with these systemic issues of evil and oppression. Get involved in ways that change the system. To act justly. This is a church, there's things that we do that are charity. Those things are great. But we want to be people who act justly in this world. For the powerless, for those who have no voice, for those who are broken. A couple ways uh, this plays out. Um, in my life, I, I feel like I, I have an idea of justice, but I'm pretty spoiled, right? Grew up here in Phoenix in Scottsdale, went to a private school. Never really had like these unjust things happen to me. So it's interesting to like be in tune with those uh, who are on the, the underside of power. Then I had children. And what's interesting about watching four children grow up in a house together is it's like Lord of the Flies, man. Like, there weren't parents, like, they would turn on each other. Uh, I mean, even this morning, I was, like, breaking up a fight between Micah and Ezra. Uh, it, it's unbelievable how they treat each other. And, and I'm okay with that. I'm allowed, allowed to, like, watch my children, like, fight their battles and all that. That's good. But then when something happens that's done unjust to them, I intervene. When something that's, that's done that I know that's not right, and, it, and the only way that it's going to be made right again is if I get involved and intervene. And so when something happens between them where they're doing something unjustly to each other or someone else is doing unjust to them, all of a sudden, my parenting that's usually hands-off gets super involved, dirty, takes action. And I started to understand, I think this is probably how God works in our world too. When he sees certain things like 12-year-old children going to a coal mine, he interacts with the world. He moves the church into ways to disrupt the system of oppression. Uh, we're a small church. There's not a ton that we can do yet. We're still gathering community. One of the things that we're involved in uh, is my, an organization called Teach One to Lead One. Teach One to Lead One works with mentoring in our school system here in Phoenix. Um, the mentoring uh, talks about leadership, different ways uh, that, that we're, we're, we're teaching uh, young, young children, elementary students, uh, to, to be leaders in their school, talking about issues of integrity and courage, um, different universal principles that are part of leadership. And we're involved in that organization. Um, as we move into the school year, they're always looking for mentors. And we love to, to say we have people in our church that can get involved in a way where they meet once a week with these children uh, to work for systemic change in our school district, to give up an hour a week to get involved. Recently, we also found out that here in Desert Ridge, in this very community, there's a pregnancy center that works with, with moms who, uh, 
who, who would come to this center because um, something, something has happened in their life and, and there's, there wasn't a plan to have a baby. Now, Marcy and I have had four babies. Some of them weren't planned, um, but there was structure and community around us. People are like, stop having children. And I'm like, you should talk to the Stancils. Tell them to stop. Um, but we found out that there, there, is this, there is this place in Desert Ridge uh, where moms who aren't planning for having a child ha- will, will have one, and they have to decide what to do with it. And we're, we're starting to learn a little bit more about like, what this organization does. And as we head into the fall, if you're interested in getting involved in it, um, you can talk to Marcy. This is uh, working towards justice here in this community. There's certain things that we're, we're slowly getting involved in as a church to say, like the 12-year-old uh, coal miners, this isn't right. There should, be, there should be something in place that doesn't allow this to happen. Um, and there's different ways that we get involved in a church. God's people act justly in this world. Part of being a part of a church community is to act justly. Sometimes this happens in, in big ways. Sometimes this happens on a very small personal level. I and mean, this is something that we want to continue to seek. What does the Lord require of us? To act justly. Second thing, to love mercy. To love mercy. Another word for, for mercy is kindness. Your uh, translation might say kindness. Again, the Hebrew word is chesed. Uh, don't know if that's how you pronounce it. Chesed. It's this idea of kindness and mercy. It expresses covenantal love. It is divine in origin and expresses the actions of kindness, loyalty, mercy, love, and unmitigated devotion. Those who love mercy and love kindness. And it's interesting that this follows act justly because I think it goes hand in hand with acting justly. Christianity isn't just about this intellectualism, where we, we have these different theologies, where we actually like try to live out what we believe. And there's a certain type of lifestyle this requires. Not just to know, not just to act, but to do it in a way that loves kindness and loves mercy. Uh, over at Harvard University, there's a story of uh, these students that were training um, for ministry. They were in this philosophy class, and the class was looking at the, the, the German-French uh, moral philosopher, Immanuel Kant. Some of you uh, ever had philosophy classes, you've heard of Immanuel Kant. Immanuel uh, Kant uh, wrote a lot about kind of like moralism in our world today, and it was very kind of woven into the framework of theology. And as these theology students were, were studying kind of this moral imperative from Immanuel Kant, they got to the end of their semester, and they're getting ready to, to write a final, their final paper. And the professor said, Here's what, what we're going to do. We've been talking about Manuel Kant's moral imperative all semester long. So for your final, I'm going to give you a test. You're going to have a two-hour window to write an essay giving your best explanation of how Immanuel Kant's moral imperative changes your behavior in the world today. So we're like two hours to write an essay. I don't think they do that anymore in school. Remember, you feel like you'd sit down and you'd write this five-paragraph essay with a pencil and paper. So students go to class. They study. They're all set. They get into the class, and they start taking this test. They're writing out this essay. They get 55 minutes into it. The professor says, all right, let's take a 10-minute break. 
So wherever you're at right now, just drop your pencil, take a break, go to the bathroom, get a drink, whatever you need to do. So the students dismiss, they go into the hallway. Some of them, uh, their minds are just mush at this point. They just need to like take a breath, reflect, try to gather their thoughts. Others had to go to the bathroom. Uh, some, some went to find the drinking fountain. Few people were just in the hallway chatting, you know, trying to stay sharp, maybe even you know, sharing ideas, who knows. In the hallway though, there is a young man uh, who may have been a college student, same age as all of them, but he was dressed in certain clothes that showed he's probably not a Harvard student. And the man was sitting in the hallway and he was kind of uh, curled up into a little ball and he was sobbing and it was awkward. And the students saw him in the corner of their eye and they thought, this is strange. And they reflect on it and saying, I remember it enough that it made an impression on me. Um, one student said, you know, maybe he was you know, a student and he was just completely bombing this test. No one really knew. But no one really approached the student. Break gets over, everyone goes back in the classroom, continues writing this essay. Finish the essay, these sharp Harvard students thinking, you know, most of them probably worked hard and are gonna ace it. A couple weeks later, they get the results from the final. And one by one, they realize all of them have failed. They've failed the final. Failing as a Harvard student, right? This is terrible. And they're in an uproar. And so one by one, they all go to the professor, knock on his door and say, how in the world could you fail me? I nailed this. I knew it. I knew everything about Immanuel Kant. And the professor tells this story. He says, I told you I was going to give you a test. You had a two-hour window. You had a two-hour window to show me whether or not you got Immanuel Kant. And he said, I went out during the break, and I sat in the hallway, and I watched all of you ignore someone who was hurting, someone who was sobbing, a stranger among you. This is why you failed. You've completely missed Kant. You've completely missed it. You know everything about him from a standpoint of intellectualism, and yet you can't put it into practice. You think about our role in this world when it comes to following Jesus. It's not just knowing. It's about loving mercy, loving kindness, the way that we do things as we interact with people around us, to act justly and to love mercy. In the same way that these students probably knew all about Immanuel Kant but missed it, I think the same thing can happen too if we act justly but we don't love mercy and kindness. There's a possibility that we could get very busy doing the actions of justice in a way that isn't loving, in a way that actually misses the one-on-one connection, in a way that misses those who are hurting among us. There are times in my life where I've been so passionate about different causes that I make everyone else miserable around me as I pursue them. And I don't think it's a coincidence that we're told to act justly, but to love mercy back to back. Do we love mercy? Do we love kindness? Are we the kind of people that the love of God just flows out of our life to other people in everything that we do? We act justly, but we love mercy and kindness as we do it. And the final thing is to walk humbly. This is a, a really powerful statement. I feel like I could do a whole sermon on this alone. This idea of walk humbly with God. Four powerful words. Walk humbly with 
God. We'll start with this idea of humbly. Humility. Humility. I think this is a defining characteristic of God's people. I don't know if this would be uh, if this would be our reputation as God's people, but I think this is what we're called to, a life of humility. Humility, as one would say, not that we think less of ourselves, but that we think of ourselves less. The idea of humility uh, that uh, we're not prideful. Not prideful in the ways that we're, uh, are destructive. C.S. Lewis uh, is one of my favorite authors and probably shaped my theology as a teenager more than anyone else. Some of you know him who wrote The Chronicles of Narnia. But he wrote this about this idea of pride and humility. And I saw it kind of early on in life. And it's really shaped me, and I think it's important. Let me just read it. He says in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says, Today I come to that part of Christian morals where they differ most sharply from all other morals. There is one vice of which no man in this world is free, which everyone loathes when they see it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except maybe Christians, except Christians, ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who is not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault that makes a man more unpopular And no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more that we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I'm talking about is pride or self-conceit. The virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. You may remember when I was talking about sexual morality, I warned you at the center of Christian morals that the center of Christian morals did not lie there. Well, now we have come to the center According to the Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, all of that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. And I thought about that idea of humility. Are we willing to be humble? Do we realize that especially as a church. Pride can lead to so many different things. Pride rips churches apart. Pride rips families apart. Pride rips communities apart. And there's this message throughout Scripture that God's hoping his people would see is to be humble in heart, to be people of humility, to be people who look out for others, that everything doesn't have to just be about us. To walk humbly is to live a life of careful, measured conduct in everything that we do. There's a humility that comes, a humility that comes in this journey with God. We don't want to be a prideful people. There's this idea of walking humbly. We see this theme of walking throughout Scripture, right? In the Garden of Eden, back when there was shalom before there was Uh, evil in the world, we we find that God would walk in the cool of the evening with Adam and Eve. There was this community between God and people. They would walk together. 
We read Psalm 23 a couple of weeks ago where even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we'll fear no evil for God's with us. In the New Testament, there's this passage where Jesus walks on water and he invites his disciple Peter out of the boat. When we walk with God, what we do is we start this journey, this slow and intimate journey with God through life. Where sometimes it's very ordinary walking in the garden, sometimes it's walking with God through the valley of the shadow of death, through tragedy, through darkness. Other times God invites us to do things that are miraculous. But all of it is walking with God. And we're invited to walk humbly with God. And all of this is tied together with this idea of with God. I would say this is where it all starts. What does God require with us? Life with God. Relationship with the divine. Relationship with our maker. In John chapter 15, Jesus says to abide in God, to live in relationship with him. He says apart from this, you can do nothing. There's one thing that we get right as a church, this desire to be in relationship with our creator. From that, we walk with him humbly. We love mercy, and we act justly. Today, as we close our time and we reflect on just this passage, I'm not sure where you're at in your journey. You might have a lot of big decisions coming up. You might have uh, an uncertain future. You might be wondering, what is it that God requires from me? The challenge is this. And whatever you do, wherever you do it, to act justly, to love mercy and kindness, and to walk humbly with God. This is what is required of us. What it means to be a part of a church, a community of people, is to be a body, the body of Christ, that lives this out in different ways. And you're invited to join this group that wants to act justly in ways that are humble, in ways that are kind in this world. And when we do that, I think that there's enough pain and darkness in this world that we can be light. And when we do that, we create this faithful witness and presence in a very destructive world around us, a world full of strife, a world full of destruction. We can be the light. We close each week with communion. And communion very much represents this story that we're a part of. When we go to communion, we go to this table and we take these elements that are symbolic. We'd say that they're sacred. They symbolize a story. They symbolize a God who looks at the world and says, I want to get involved. I want to restore the brokenness. All the ways that We've missed the mark as humans. I want to make a way for life. And so we come to the table and we take bread and we take juice. And the bread represents this idea that God became human, that he came down and he walked among us. There was this incarnation that revealed what the heart of God was like. And if we want to know what God is, we look to his son, Jesus. And this Jesus loved us so much that he sacrificed himself for us. And this bread represents this body of God, this body of Christ that was broken on the cross. 
And then this juice that we take represents this blood of Christ that was poured out. And we know that something symbolic is happening here with how uh, there's a sacrificial system in the Old Testament. But then in Jesus, there's this new covenant where through the breaking of his body, the pouring out of his blood, eternal life is given. Life is given back into this world. And we come and we remember that. And we're invited to join in that story. Maybe you've never joined in. We'd love to share more about that with you. Maybe you've joined in that story and you need to be reminded of how that shapes the way that we live in this world, that we act justly, that we love mercy, that we walk humbly with God. Wherever you're at in your journey today, we invite you to the table. What we'd like to say is well, we practice open communion, so if you have relationship with God, feel free to partake. If you don't, if that's new to you, we'd love to chat. Um, but we, we enter into this moment where something sacred happens. And Tim's going to come back up with the band and close us uh, with a song and a time of reflection. And let me just pray for us today. Lord, we thank you so much for seeing us, for being a God that sees injustice in this world and is moved to action. The same way that we would with our children. You intervene. And Lord, we don't want to be uh, we don't want to be deaf to the cries of the world around us. We don't want to be numb or apathetic. So we pray, Lord, that you would create a sensitivity to our eyes and ears, that we would see and that we would hear, that we'd be in tune with the things that break your heart, that we'd be moved to action, that we would act justly. The example of the coal miners that are children, Lord. We would see things like that and we would say, that's not right. We're going to do something about it. And Lord, I'd ask that we would, do, we would do so in ways that are kind, full of mercy, peace-loving. Then all of our actions, Lord, uh, we would never do it with a puffed-up chest. We would never do it as elitist. We would do it out of love. Lord, that there would be a sense of humility. Even as a, as a small and new church, Lord, that you would just mold this character into our DNA. That we'd be a, a humble people that always points to you. Lord, that we would walk with you in this world. All the ways that we try to get things right, all the ways that we try to keep you happy, all of the things that we strive for, Lord, we just be reminded that you desire a relationship with us. And Lord, as we turn to the table now, we're reminded of how the greatest love comes from laying down your life for a friend. We see this in your example on the cross, and we're inspired to do this as your body. Lord, that you would empower us, you would give us courage and strength to break ourselves open, to pour ourselves out so that more people may know you and your love and your salvation. Be with us today, Lord. Stir in our hearts, speak to us. We love you.